Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS, and for this edition we're going to talk about geographical inequalities and in particular geographical inequalities which may have been changed or exacerbated by the current COVID crisis. To do that, I'm joined by Imran Razul, who is the Research Director at the IFS, and Christine Farquharson, who's a Senior Economist at the IFS. They've recently published a significant study looking at the geographical uh, disparities between different forms of the impact of COVID on people across England particularly, and they've also been looking at uh, the whole levelling up agenda and issues around inequality within the UK. Before we move on to the whole issue of how COVID is affecting different communities, I wonder, Imran, if you could start by saying something about pre-existing inequalities. After all, um, if there's one thing, or perhaps a second thing after, get Brexit done, that we might remember from uh, Boris Johnson's election campaign, it really was focused on this idea of levelling up. So can you say a little bit about what those geographic inequalities were, and perhaps even speculate on what Mr Johnson might have meant by levelling up? Sure. Thank you, Paul. Um, I, I think it's right to say that in the UK for a very long time, we've been aware of geographic differences in uh, economic success of, of different parts of the country. It's very much embedded in our discussions of, say, north-south divides. And that's that's been the case for a very long time. If you go back to, even to the start of the 20th century, it was well documented then that London was doing much better than, than, the, than, the, than the average uh, for the country at that time. So these are very persistent um, differences in economic outcomes across different parts of the country. And, and they've changed over time. There was a decline in spatial inequalities in the 80s and 90s and a steady increase in uh, geographic inequalities um, since, the, uh, since the Great Recession. And on some dimensions, the, the UK has more spatial inequality than any other country in the OECD. And so a natural question, where does that arise from? And it's been documented by, by others that um, the geographic location of very skilled workers plays a, a key role in driving some of those differences, as well as differences in the return to those types of very high skill um, that, that, have, that have changed over time. And we might come back later, later in the podcast to think about how the crisis itself sort of might might change some of those fundamental drivers of spatial inequality in, in the UK. And as you mentioned, that's led to the led to the recent um, interest in trying to level up and, and, and try to think of ways to to reduce those uh, spatial inequalities. And our piece really tries to think about in the context of the current crisis, what are the key elements of that crisis, and how might those elements exacerbate or, or reduce some of the spatial inequalities that that we currently see. Um, and have seen on the eve of the crisis in the UK. So, as you say, we certainly see big differences in incomes, uh, employment rates, uh, house prices uh, between London and much of the rest of the UK. Uh, many more graduates in in London and the southeast than there are in many cities in the in the north and the northwest and the northeast. So, we do have significant inequalities, but we have poverty in London, and we have uh, a number of very well off people. Uh, outside of London. So it's a complex story. But I think you're also finding that the impact of COVID has been pretty complex, perhaps even more complex than one might have expected. You can think about that inequality in terms of its impact on health, its impact on employment, its impact on children's chances, and so on. But let's start with the um, sort of most obvious question 
which is what do we know about the spread of where people have been uh, suffering from COVID itself and indeed dying? What are the uh, what are the geographic differences in terms of people's actual experience of the COVID crisis so far in terms of their health? So very much the, the crisis began and was most acute in, uh, in, in within London. And so in our um, work, we document how the both in terms of cases and, and deaths, um, those are at a very high rate in uh, within London. But then over time, the virus has spread to other parts of the country. And currently, the northwest and northeast are, are some of those areas that are experiencing uh, the most recent rises in in, um, in uh, case loads as well as um, death rates. And there is going to be some variation around the country in, in sort of the intensity um, and, and the accuracy of the statistics that we have will partly depend on differences in the underlying uh, ability to test in those areas and susceptibilities to, to the virus will depend on underlying health characteristics. And that's the starting point for, for really our, our analysis to say, well, the thing that's really unique about the, the current crisis that makes it different from most other types of macroeconomic shock that we're used to is that the country's being affected on a whole range of different dimensions, first and foremost in terms of health, um, but there are other important dimensions in terms of how people's livelihoods are being affected and how families are being uh, affected. And so that's what we try to trace out the extent to which we see similar geographic patterns or not across those three dimensions of the crisis and how that might impact how we think about policies to, to alleviate those um, going forward. So thinking about the, the, the health element of this, as you say, the actual impact has moved around the country, starting off in London, uh, moving uh, quickly to the West Midlands, and now a lot of the worst uh, cases or the highest uh, proportion seem to be in the more rural areas and more towards the north, the northwest. That's actually what's happened to people so far. But in terms of the patterns of potential vulnerability, in terms of the numbers of people who are old or have underlying um, health uh, conditions, what sort of geographic patterns do you see in that and therefore perhaps telling us something about vulnerability uh, going forward? So the way that we define health vulnerabilities are based on, on, on two key dimensions that are very specific to, to the current crisis. One is the share of a population in any local area um, that's age 70 and above. And then the share of the population with pre-existing health conditions that might make them particularly susceptible um, to COVID. And so what we document is that it, along those health vulnerabilities, though, those typically don't line up very closely with other measures or standard measures of deprivation that we might use across um, different local areas. And that's because health vulnerabilities to COVID don't necessarily line up to, to poor health um, amongst populations uh, initially. So there's a slight negative relationship between traditional measures of deprivation in, in local areas and the susceptibility of populations uh, to COVID in particular. So that might suggest that moving forward as we're trying to ease the lockdown, many of the places that have been thus far most impacted by, by the COVID health crisis are not those areas that actually are the most susceptible on those health grounds to COVID. So that calls for a very delicate balance that there are still many vulnerable populations and areas that potentially, if there were to be a second wave or, or, or an increase in, in the incidence of, of COVID going forward, that there still might be many vulnerable populations that, that still could be hit by the crisis. And in terms of their geographic location, I mean, we're talking 
to a large extent, are we, about the sorts of places you might expect older people to be living, whether that be on on the south coast, but I think you also find in uh, some parts of uh, northern England as well. That's right. So a, a common pattern that we see is coastal areas are, are ones which, which typically have um, older populations. Um, many areas outside of London actually have populations which are going to be more susceptible to, to COVID. But I, I raise coastal areas for the particular reason that they are almost hit by a triple whammy along all, all of the dimensions that, that we've mentioned of both having very vulnerable populations in terms of their underlying um, health characteristics that might make them susceptible to COVID, combined with the fact that there are often extreme pockets of deprivation in, in some coastal areas. And those parts of the countries have economies that are particularly reliant on some on, on sectors in, in, in hospitality and personal services that have been most impacted by um, social distancing and, and the need to shut down those sectors to, to some extent. Well, uh, that's a very good um place to move to Christine, who will talk a little bit more, I hope, about some of those non-health impacts of the current pandemic and starting with these labour market effects. Christine, generally, we've come to expect labour market shocks in recessions in the UK to hit particular parts of the country, often the old manufacturing areas in the north and the Midlands. Are we seeing something similar this time? We're really not. And I think Imran hit the nail on the head earlier when he said that this isn't just going to be a health crisis. It's also going to be an economic crisis and a social crisis. So in our work, we build up or we we use a measure of COVID specific economic shocks in particular, which areas employ a lot of workers who are in these kind of shutdown sectors, uh, the hospitality industry, the tourism industry until earlier this week, the non-essential retail industry. And those are very different workers from the people who we typically expect to lose their jobs in a macroeconomic crisis. As you were saying, it's usually the areas that have, you know, the worst off economies to start with who suffer the most when there's a downturn. But what we're seeing in this recession, because there's been this specific decision to shut down particular industries, is it's actually more affluent areas, if anything, that are going to suffer a greater hit to their local economy because they employ this larger share of predominantly low-paid workers in these kind of hospitality and retail and other support kind of industries. So that's, uh, so, so to sort of probably oversimplify that, I mean, a, a lot of the problem might be faced by low-paid workers in relatively well-off areas of the country. At least low-paid workers who are employed in well-off areas. And this is one of the places where actually the message gets really quite nuanced because when we look at the areas that have a lot of workers who are likely to be particularly badly hit, those are workers who are employed in those local authorities. That doesn't necessarily mean that they live there. And so we might see a situation where local authorities whose economies are hit particularly hard are different from local authorities who have to pick up the slack in terms of providing social services to people who have now become unemployed. Uh, so there's places like London where there's a lot of retail, hospitality, uh, tourism, those sorts of issues. But Imran also mentioned particularly the issue around coastal towns, which are often very dependent on these kinds of industries. Absolutely. Coastal towns and rural towns. Uh, particularly, we picked out a few places in the southwest, as well as Cumberland and North and Northumbria, as being places where tourism just is a really crucial driver to the local economy. 
I was speaking yesterday to someone from the Isle of Wight, and they're saying, you know, it's, it's fundamental for us whether hospitality opens sometime this month or whether it opens on the 4th of July or whether it's pushed even later than that, because that's such an important driver for their local economy. But the complexity is going to be balancing those local economic factors with some of the health risks in these more rural areas that Imran's spoken about. Because as, 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 as we heard, places like the Isle of Wight, a lot of these coastal towns also have rather elderly populations. And they're also, I think, uh, some of them likely to be uh, relatively poor and have vulnerable families and children in particular. And one of the other things that you've been working on, I know, is the impacts of this crisis on school children, and in particular, evidence that poorer children are doing particularly badly in terms of their educational attainment. Yeah, that's right. So at the start of this crisis, a lot of scholars in this area said, this is looking pretty bad. Poorer children are are probably going to be hit quite hard by this. Since then, we at IFS and others have done a lot of research to kind of depressingly confirm that that is in fact the case. Poorer kids are spending a lot less time on home learning and they're getting access to a lot fewer resources to do it. What that means in terms of educational vulnerabilities and social vulnerabilities is we've looked at the share of kids who are eligible for free school meals in each local authority, as well as at the share of kids who are receiving children's social care services, so things like child protection plans or or child need plans. And these are two groups who are particularly, we think, at risk, either of poorer educational outcomes during the lockdown or of actual risk of harm if the social services that they need aren't being delivered to them as effectively as they could be in a face-to-face environment. That's saying nothing of the kids who might be vulnerable, who aren't being picked up on pre-crisis measures, where the vulnerability has come about as a result of this crisis. But even on the two measures, even on what we can see from before the crisis, there's already a really strong pattern around England. And it's particularly northern and urban local authorities where children are likely to be especially vulnerable, as well as really quite disadvantaged and poor areas. In, in the piece, we, des- we described the spatial pattern of, um, of vulnerabilities really as a patchwork, because I think really the, the key insight or the key message that we wanted to get across by studying these three dimensions was to say that no two areas look alike. You can actually have two neighboring areas, and we give some examples in the, in the piece, that are actually experiencing the crisis in very different ways. And so how we're thinking about the trade-offs, the, the needs of local areas, whether it's in terms of the jobs dimension, the families dimension, or the health dimension, that really varies local area by local area. And that makes this crisis both different from earlier ones, but the policy challenge is really very, very different from what we've ever seen before. And, and, and how we might get out, of the, get out of the crisis might be quite different in different areas. And that makes it quite complex for central government making policy, doesn't it? I mean, this is, I mean, levelling up was uh, always an incredibly complex issue in any case. But I think we at least broadly knew in very broad terms what we meant by that, which was helping those areas which were economically less well off relative to those areas that are economically better off. But this is uh, a much more complex because we are thinking about not just the economics, uh, but also uh, the health um, and also the, as Christine was saying, the social services. And each of these are have different needs in different areas. Though there are a small number, I think, where they did overlap, and a, a certain number which um, uh, I think out of your analysis came that they really are being hit by that triple whammy. 
There are. So there's nine local authorities that are more vulnerable than average in all three dimensions. They're really spread across the country as well. You see northern areas like Blackpool or Northumberland, rural areas like Dorset. But the two by a country mile who are likely to be hit the hardest are the Isle of Wight and Torbay. And these two areas are both in the top fifth most vulnerable local authorities in England across all three dimensions that we study. For those policymakers, building, building a consensus on how to come out of lockdown is just a really tough thing because there's trade-offs facing them every which way. If you reopen the tourism sector, are you putting vulnerable people at risk on health grounds? If you're opening schools, does that have implications for health as well? If you're keeping tourism closed, is that going to further disadvantage children with, with long-run impacts on their education? But what's interesting in our research is that that small group of local authorities is very much in the minority around England. In most places, local authorities fall into a couple of different groups. So we have coastal areas where it's a health shock and an economic shock, uh, but children are generally looking to be less affected. We have areas in the north, particularly, where there's a health shock and vulnerability for families. So designing policy that fits these patchworks of vulnerability and is going to balance the trade-offs appropriately for what the local conditions are is going to be one of the challenges going forward. And that might imply, mightn't it, quite different policies in different areas in itself, uh, possibly creating quite a lot of complexity and confusion and difficulty in communicating the message if schools open in one authority and not another or lockdown continues in one area uh, or not another. So there's a, another set of national trade-offs to make there as well. I think that, that there are some important sort of policy um, challenges that arise th when you think about the crisis along these three dimensions. First and foremost, the impacts of the crisis may play out over very different timescales depending on which dimension we're, we're thinking about. So hopefully being, being optimistic, we think the health dimension, you know, a, a vaccine or, or, or some kind of treatment may be, may be on its way and with a, within a few years we may be able to manage the coronavirus. The, the economic impacts might play out over the medium term as we come out over the, try to come out of uh, the current recession and the impacts related to families and school children may play out in the, in the very long run. So there are those very different time dimensions of thinking about when assistance might be most needed. But it's vital to think that if there are going to be potentially medium and long run impacts on these different dimensions, what can policy do now rather than wait for these um, problems to, uh, to need to be remedied in the future? The, the second key dimension is one in which, you know, how do we allocate responsibilities between central and local government across these different uh, areas? We've seen that with regards to, say, you know, economic policies in the UK, and I still view us as being relatively in the very early stages of the crisis, but we, relatively speaking, we could have a one-size-fits-all economic approach to targeting resources to those individuals who, who've lost their jobs or those firms who are in, uh, in trouble. That, that may be hard, harder to maintain going forward. But on the other dimension, in terms of the public health response, that's been that's been much more challenging, I think, for central government, partly because it's a more decentralised, more fragmented system where potentially more, more local knowledge um, could, could be utilised. And the education system is probably closer to that second um, institutional setup than, than some of the economic policies have been able to, to roll out very quickly. So I think it does raise a whole set of challenges about 
how should we um, tackle these policies? Who should be responsible for, for, for these different dimensions? And as, as Christine mentioned earlier, the fact that where individuals live might not be where also where, where they work leads to important issues about trying to coordinate policies ac- across local areas um, as there may be externalities of what they do on, on, on to other individuals. So I think there's a whole set of challenges that we typically don't have to think about in such a short time frame um, that, that arise um, because COVID is such a multi-dimensional shock that we're, that we're observing. I think the first thing for policymakers to do to try and get to grips with this is just to recognise that this is a multi-dimensional crisis. We've heard a lot about whether we're looking at this as a health crisis or whether we're looking at this as an economic crisis or whether we're concerned about educational losses from school closures. And the crucial thing is going to be to recognize that it's all three of those at the same time right now, but with very different different effects in the short, medium and long term, as Imran set out. The second thing for policymakers to do is to understand that while there might be costs to having local lockdowns um, as around communication, as Paul mentioned, or around people's motivation, it looks like there could be benefits as well to more locally driven policy in terms of getting that balance between the economy and health and, and education a little bit more suited to the local context in different places. And then the third thing for policymakers to do is at least to start incorporating local voices in how they're making these decisions. So we've seen a lot of discussion between the Westminster government and the devolved nations. But what our research is suggesting is that government needs to look even further down the devolution ladder and start to look to local authorities as well to bring in that local knowledge and local experience of the conditions to inform what's going on on a national scale. And that at least is uh, is a message that I think people working in this area for many years have uh, tried to convey to central government that in a country the size of the UK, we are very centralised. We have relatively little uh, power and responsibility in local areas and therefore relatively little capacity to respond differentially uh, across the country, uh, even in normal times. And as I think this uh, work uh, that the two of you have been involved in shows really you know, to a remarkable degree in the time of a crisis like this where it is hitting uh, local air, really quite local areas really quite differently. There really isn't any hope, is there, of Whitehall being able to manage this um, in the same way across the country in a way that's going to be appropriate for all of those local areas. That's right. As we move forward, we can I- imagine the experience of different uh, authorities to diverge along these three dimensions. We've seen a very clear sort of time path of how the, the virus has moved around the, the country and that might continue um, going forward. And so the challenges uh, are there, but, you know, it's always a matter of trading off devolving authority with also making sure that, you know, authority um, decisions are internalizing the effects on, on, on neighboring uh, authorities as well. Though in a sense, we are all in this together in, to, to a large extent. And so um, it always requires getting that balance right. Perhaps traditionally in the UK, we, we haven't uh, got that balance right. And this is a big wake up call for us to really think through what might be the right dimensions to devolve and then to back that up with adequate resources so local authorities can uh, take actions to, to, to remedy situations quickly. I think that's rather interesting because we've heard quite a lot of people saying this might be a moment at which we can rethink the way the welfare system works or rethink the way the tax system works or the social care system. But in a way, you're thinking even bigger that this may actually be a moment where we can start to rethink 
almost how the governance system works um, in in England, at least, because uh, we are experiencing such a different form of geographical impact and one that requires these kinds of local interventions. I, I think the crisis has shone light on that, the fact that some of our very important institutions are very devolved already, but we don't have decision making devolved to the same levels. And perhaps we're seeing that most strikingly in the contrast between the public health response versus the economic response of the, of the crisis so, so far. So I think it does raise a lot of important um, questions that have always been on the agenda. There has obviously been a, a slow movement towards devolution, whether we're getting that exactly right in the country and on what dimensions we might want to accelerate that. I think they're all being brought to, brought to the fore by the current crisis. And I think the Westminster government has been discovering some of this as well as the crisis has rolled on. I'm thinking particularly of the push to reopen some schools on the 1st of June, which was made you know, by the central government, essentially announced as, as this is how it's going to be. And then, you know, to, to people's surprise, some of the local education authorities rebelled and said, actually, no, you know what? We're not happy with that. Our schools can't do it. Our teachers don't want to do it. We're not going to. And I think that highlights in, in some sense the tension between devolving responsibilities, wanting to retain some sort of national leadership over the sector, um, but how you can coordinate policy so that different children in different areas are getting similar opportunities with reflecting the fact that the situation on the ground is going to look very different in different areas and just understanding who needs to be in the room and who needs to be consulted when those kinds of decisions are made is, I think, a lesson that we're going to see being learned possibly several more times over through the crisis as well. It's the sort of lesson, sadly, that um, Whitehall ought to have learned dozens of times in the past that simply making an announcement from Downing Street or even from the Department of Education doesn't necessarily mean anything very much is going to happen unless you bring people along with you. And the, the, the continual failure of British governments to understand the importance of that, I think, really is depressing. And it's actually one of the problems of governance, it seems to me, that has created uh, what does not look like a particularly great performance of the British government and um, health service and economy relative to those in many other countries. Um, Christine uh, Imran, did you want to add anything else to, uh, to, to that? No, I, I just wanted to go back to where we started from in terms of what are some of the long-run drivers of spatial uh, inequality in the UK and how much of that is potentially driven by very high-skilled individuals located in, located in urban areas and the returns of those skills. And really those two factors alone can explain lots of the differences um, across areas that we see in the UK. And so it's interesting to think what might be the impacts of the crisis on those two forces. And so I think a lot of individuals, especially high-skilled workers, have realized that they can work from home. And so, you know, potentially there may be some movements of individuals actually to disperse more around the country, and at least the trade-offs of living in an urban centre have now become different for those individuals and uh, as well as the firms that, that, that employ them. So that might, might be a force that counters some of the long-run changes that we've seen pre-crisis. But then what happens to the premium for those skills is, is very much up in the air. It could be the case that the premium actually rises further um, because those workers are in, in some sense able to continue in the face of these types of aggregate and uh, large-scale shocks across the economy. So depending on which of those forces really plays out to a greater extent, we might see the patterns that we've seen up until the crisis continue or, or actually diminish. And I think that's a very important area for us to continue studying and, and thinking about. Yeah, I think that's uh, I, so that's a, that's a very important and interesting note 
uh, on which to finish. There's a lot of uncertainty about what the long-run economic consequences of the current crisis might be on the geography of inequality. It may well be uh, that it hits London really very hard as people, uh, either because the virus takes a long time to go away or because people generally feel uh, more worried about living in a big urban centre dependent on public transport. That could be uh, a good thing for the British economy if it spreads wealth across the rest of the UK, or it could be a disaster if it simply means that London becomes less wealthy and there's less money uh, to go around. So the uncertainties uh, remain very significant, but the 2020s could look very different from all sorts of points of view, including a geographical point of view, uh, from what we've seen over the uh, over the last four or five decades. Um, thank you, Imran. Thank you, Christine. That's been a fascinating uh, episode of the IFS Zooms In. If you did enjoy the episode, please hit subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.